0: Everybody. <laughs> hey, why don't you uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. While you're turning there, uh, if you came today, maybe you're visiting, maybe you've been coming for years, you don't have a Bible, uh, some of the ushers have spare Bibles. If you need one, just flag one down uh, as they're uh, by the doors. And As you're turning there, just a reminder that we are in the same passage of scripture that we were in last week, only last week, we were doing more of an apologetic about what the text does not mean, right? We, we didn't so much spend time speaking about what the text means, which we wanna do today. Uh, last week, we, we spoke as it pertains to slavery. When uh, Paul speaks of slavery, we spoke about how it's, it's something different than what we normally uh, connotate or draw up in our minds uh, it 's still not good, Paul had some things to say about that, but largely it's it 's speaking about something very different than what we understand, uh, given our history with uh, transcontinental slavery and human trafficking, which is still present today uh, and We looked at the at the text of scripture to. Come to the realization and the conviction on, uh, based on the heart of God in His revealed Word that God does not condone slavery. In fact, He calls us to speak out against injustices in the world today, uh, both against evil structures and also by preaching the gospel, speaking the gospel, and living according to the gospel. So that was what we, we spent our time last week doing to be careful not to insert into Paul's very good exhortation uh, modern understandings and modern constructs. What we want to look at today is essentially saying, well, uh, if we were to do justice to what Paul is speaking about, when he says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, what this might look like in contemporary terms is a really awful job or a taskmaster of, a, of, a, of an employer, or a job situation that is cruel and unjust, something that is unbearable. And so, without further ado, the title of today's sermon is, What to Do When You Hate Your Job, What God Thinks About the Job You Hate, and What You Are Called to Do. And that's the subject of today's sermon, and this is the text, and then after we read it, we'll pray together verse 5 through 9, Paul says this, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Masters, do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality in him. This is God's holy, trustworthy word. Let's pray. God, we come before you by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, with excitement and also reverential fear and trembling, knowing that you are drawing together a story of your eternal purpose, as Paul put it in Ephesians. You have a purpose that you have been drawing out for centuries. Before time began, you had a plan, a plan involving your kingdom, your people in your place, under your rule, for your glory and for their joy. That you started with an introduction, you are going to wrap it up with a conclusion, and in the midst of all things, you have been putting together a a plot line drawing together and putting together what your eternal purpose is for the world today and for your people today and lord thank you that we as your people find ourselves situated in the plot line of what you are doing in the world today we pray that you would excite us for the things that you are doing knowing that even though we find ourselves in various scenes some of them are confusing some of them are not what we thought we were living for some of them uh, are not panning out the way that we thought they would for some of us we are encountering conflict and suffering and trials for some of us we are in job situations that we didn't think that we would be in that we don't find desirable for some of us life is unfair For some of us, life is simply unjust, unjust. We pray that you, as we open up your word, would cause us to to find a panoramic view of the story that you are weaving together for your glory, that even though we don't understand the things that are happening to us right now, we can at least understand that God is in control. That you have crushed Satan underneath your feet. And that you are turning every bad story into a good one. And I pray that in the midst of the fire, even though you might not bring us out of the fire, you would bring us through it. More in love with you. More in love with each other. And more excited about what you are doing in the midst of our city. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. William Faulkner, in an interview called "Writers at Work in 1958, wrote this. He said, one of the saddest things is that the only thing that a man can do for eight hours a day, day after day, is work. You can't eat eight hours a day, or drink for eight hours a day, nor make love for eight hours a day. All you can do for eight hours is Work. Which is the reason why man makes himself and everyone else so miserable and unhappy. This, although exaggerated as writers sometimes are, sums up for some of us the sentiment that we often feel. That even if you don't have, uh, for some of you, you have a, a, an awful job situation. Some of you maybe have a dream job, but for you, you you reach points in that dream job that are pressurized, that are difficult. And Faulkner sums up the sentiment that some of us feel, is that work is miserable and we hate our jobs. And whether it's for one of you, a a job that you never saw yourself working, or labor that you just absolutely hate, it's something that you were not created to do, you feel in your mind, or you're in a situation where you are not being appreciated, where you are actually being pushed around, disrespected, you're not getting that raise you wish you got, you're uh, uh, being looked down by all your coworkers, or even by your boss. Or, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you're doing exactly what you want to do, you have your dream job, you're living the dream, but right now, in this week, and in this moment, you are in a place that you find unbearable. Whatever that looks like for you, Many of us in this room can say, at least at some point in our lives, yeah, work is miserable and I hate my job. And I want you to put yourself back in that place, whatever that looked like for you, where work is more of a trial than it is a joy. And I want you to imagine or think through the things that you think when, the, when those things hit the fan, That if, uh, the things that you set up the reactions that you have, the things that go through your mind, the way that you approach work when you hate work. Think about the way that you think, the outlook that you have towards work. Most often, for some of us, perhaps for many of us, our default is a position of self-preservation, right? It's the old-fashioned fight-or-flight fancy. That when things are not going my way, there's just that tendency within to push back, to resist, to guard myself, to protect myself. Why? Because self is the most important thing in this situation. Think of ways that that plays itself out in your job. Perhaps you hate your job. How do you go to work every day? You go to work with a sense of self-preservation. How does that look? Well, perhaps you go with a heart that is very resistant to what, to everything, to institutions, to corporations, to the boss, to the rules, to the laws. Find yourself, even in little ways, just being difficult. Just elbowing people, especially those who are in charge. Maybe making your opposition known and heard. Oh yeah, you'll, you'll clock in if you have to, but you're gonna make sure everybody knows you're not happy to be there. filling out, just TPS reports all day long. For some of you, maybe it's not resistance. Maybe you're uh, more passive-aggressive. And for you, it's just deception. Cutting corners. Maybe telling little white lies. Putting on a facade. Maybe you do a great job at work, but why do you do a great job at work? You do a great job at work to make yourself look better. Perhaps for that raise. Perhaps for a promotion. Of course, when... The people who need to see how well you are doing in order to reward you are gone. You go back to whatever it was that you were doing before. And maybe for some, it's none of those things. Maybe it's simple apathy. It's that your heart is not in your job. Your heart is not in your job and there in your work is a lack of motivation. Maybe even sheer laziness. Perhaps you go to work clocking in clocking out, and in the sandwich of that workspace, find yourself doing as little as humanly possible. In fact, doing the minimum that is required to not get fired. It's okay. So regardless of what end of the spectrum you find yourself in, in the moments that you hate work, you hate working, and you hate your job, at the very best... Self-preservation looks like getting by with as little as possible and at work. At worst, it looks like sheer and utter resistance. And why do we do these things? Why do we find ourselves protecting ourselves? It's like a self-defense, or it's a defense mechanism. We put our guard up in order to protect ourselves from everything and everyone and every structure. Those things that we find ourselves in and doing and even called to. And these acts give us a little bit, a sense, if you will, of satisfaction. Even if it's fleeting, right? Why do we resist? Because it makes us feel protected. It makes us feel in control. Why do we drag our feet? Why are we lazy? Because that's what we want to do, or that's what we don't want to do. And we're in control of our lives. Why do we cut corners? Why do we put on a facade? Why do we show ourselves to be what we're not actually? Why do we only do good work when people are watching and there's a benefit involved? Because we want to be in control of our situation. And we want to control others in order for that to happen. No matter how you tie things, everything seems to come back to the sense of self-preservation. We want to preserve ourselves because we are in control of our lives, because we are enthroned on our lives. And those fleeting moments, even though they don't always go very far, we might not get the raise we wanted, we uh, we might get ridiculed, we might suffer even more, at least for that moment in time. Even if it's just a thought in my mind, I hate my job. I hate my employer. At least in that moment of, of, of simmering in those thoughts of self-preservation and defense, we, we have a, a sense of satisfaction. We are making ourselves feel good about ourselves. But I, I want to pose this question to all of us. Does it really satisfy you? Because if it did, If you were satisfied in your work, would you always be on the defensive in your work? Would you always be finding ways to cut corners, to drag your feet, to resist, to make your opposition hurt, to defend yourself, to preserve yourself, if you were really, truly, and deeply satisfied in who you were and what you were doing? And are you really satisfied year in and year out as you go through the motions in this job that you hate and in this work that you can't stand with these people that don't respect you and this employer that doesn't give you what you feel like you deserve? Are you really satisfied in everything that's going on around you? Perhaps if some of us were honest and it wouldn't take much, we would say no. And when you wake up in the morning, all that you did to preserve Your sense of well-being, your sense of entitlement seems to drive you further down that abyss of misery. You wake up feeling less good about yourself and more defensive. Which when you slow down and begin to think about it just a little bit makes a whole lot of sense. Stick a bunch of people together in a room who are all watching out for themselves and themselves only. It never ends good. The community of self preservation will always create an environment of misery. We wonder why we go to work miserable, fighting people who are miserable, butting heads with people who are miserable. A community of self-preservation always creates an environment of misery. And the crazy thing about this and what Scripture alludes to and points our eyes to is this strange concept that love of self and self-preservation and misery all have their origin in one thing, in the sinful fall of humanity. You go back all the way to the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 3 where God puts man and woman in the garden and he commits to them this commission to steward creation in the garden calls them to steward creation as his vice regents. God being the king over all of his kingdom saying uh, saying to Adam and Eve, you are now vice regents in my name so steward this stuff for my glory and for your enjoyment. And the first thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3, with the serpent coming across and planting the seed of deceit in the minds of Eve and Adam, saying what? Did he really say, are you sure? And at the very end of that conversation, what is it that the the serpent says to Eve? He says, that's not true. God actually knows What would be good for you? He knows that if you took the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil, you would actually uh, experience all of this stuff just like he does, and you would be awesome. And he wants to keep you from that. What's going on in that situation? Planting seeds of self-preservation. What does Eve do? Oh, yeah. God's not uh, uh, not after my joy. He's not watching out for me. He's deceiving me. I need to put up my defenses. I need to watch out for myself. I need to guard my own back. Because God's gonna stab it. And for the first time in history, in a work labor situation, the first people at work say, I don't trust this authority. And I am going to usurp authority by watching out for myself. And the result of that sin is very poignant and very clear in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree, about which I commanded you, do not eat it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. And from that point on, humanity has been feeling the curse in the workplace. This is toil. This is drudgery. This is heartache. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 22 perhaps describes a situation that some of us feel on a good Monday morning or afternoon. For what does a man get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is futile. Now, what Genesis and Ecclesiastes and the scope of Scripture is saying about work is actually not that work in itself is bad or meant to be drudgery. Actually, what we're going to learn next week is that work was meant to glorify God. It It was meant to assist in human thriving. It was meant to be fulfilling, and it was meant to be good. Work was invented by God before the fall of man. God gives stewardship to Adam and Eve to to work and to expand the territory. Genesis and Ecclesiastes aren't saying work is miserable inherently, but rather work becomes miserable when people make work about themselves. Whenever we go to our job to clock in trying to get ours, there will inevitably be deep conflict between people. Where our solution is one of self-preservation, you find that the storyline of Scripture presents a different solution, one of honor, one which considers those around you as more important than yourself. Honor, in this case, being doing the best that you can do in a given situation without any ulterior motive whatsoever. And Paul begins to outline this, starting in verse 5. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Those who are uh, in authority over you, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart is to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. This is what Paul would say to an employee. He would say, hey, don't just... Don't just go through the motions. Don't cut corners. Don't just try to get by. Don't just clock in doing the minimum that you're uh, capable of, of doing, cursing your employer in your mind and in your heart. Do it with sincerity. Or literally wholehearted obedience. He has in mind the sense that, man, if you're a janitor, you're going to work. Not just sweeping the floors in the corners while people are watching you. But you are just on your knees with a toothbrush. Just the cracks in the walls. Just just doing over and beyond what is expected of you. Verse 6. Not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. There is a sense in there of integrity. You're not doing the things that you're doing in order to get a raise. You're not doing the things that you're doing so that the right people in the right places can see you doing the right thing at the right time. You are doing these things with wholehearted obedience. You're going over and beyond everybody else. Whether anyone is looking, whether anybody finds out ever, integrity. There's a sincerity involved, there's an integrity. I love how the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible puts verse 6, don't work only while being watched in order to please men. And then lastly, in verse 7, with goodwill, render service to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord. There's this note of enthusiasm, or or perhaps enthusiasm is the wrong word, but an inner joy, a wholeness, that thing that we're after, right? Where a person is able to do whatever they're called to do as well as they can possibly do it. And then before Paul stops speaking, He moves on to employers saying what? Masters, you do the same to your employees. Masters, you do the same to your slaves, to your servants, and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and he doesn't play favorites. Do you see what's going on here? What the gospel of Jesus Christ does to alter the workplace? It is essentially making the well-being of any given person less important than everybody else's. Paul is stepping into a job situation and he's saying to everybody, everyone else's well-being is more important than your own. And thereby shattering our sense of self-defense, our sense of self-preservation. Why? Because we are losing our life called to lose our lives, called to consider others more important than ourselves. And here's maybe a question that some of you are asking as you're hearing some of this being developed by Paul. What if my boss doesn't return the favor? Because some of you are hearing this and you're like, oh yeah, this is a good formula. Because my, bo- my boss is just awful. He's just slave master. He's cruel. He doesn't appreciate me for all of my giftings and what I contribute to the company and what I do. And oh, this is great. I love what the text is saying. Do, do good and, and, and there will be a reward. My boss will see the light of Christ Jesus in me and he'll get a raise and uh, he'll quit his job and make me the boss, you know, whatever. The way that we daydream when we're at work. But what if my boss doesn't return the favor? Like at what point do I stop doing this? <laughs> Oh man. At what point do I stop doing this? What if it doesn't work out for my benefit? What if things don't change? I want to read to you verse 6 again. We're not doing it by the way, by way of eye service. Do whatever you are doing uh, as well as you could possibly do it. Don't work only while being watched in order to please man. All of a sudden, Paul removes this motivation that many of us have. We're working to move forward. We're working to be promoted. We're working to get in the good graces of the right people. We do good things. We work hard. We work uh, Uh, we go over and beyond our expectations, but why? Because we're, we're paying it forward, so to speak. We're doing things for a certain reason. What if those things never come? Well, Paul would say, don't do it for that motivation anymore. You're a Christian now. You're doing it regardless of whether you ever get reward in this life because your reward is ultimately in heaven, as you would say later. The apostle Peter puts uh, expounds upon this even more in depth in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 through 20 when he says servants be subject to your masters with all respect. Listen to this. Not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know what Paul and Peter are saying to you in the situation you find yourself in? Even if you go the rest of your life for decades serving, and you never get credit for it at your job, in fact, even if you get, uh, even if you get mistreated, Paul and Peter would say, that is is what impresses your heavenly father. Even the heathen does good things at his job in order to get something good in return. What separates the Christian community from those outside of the church? It's those who extend grace and goodwill even though they get nothing in return. That's the definition of grace. And this is our calling in every type of relationship that there is, as we saw through Ephesians. Uh, Children and uh, parent, husband and wife, uh, people within the church towards one another, singles. And now as we see, us in our vocations. And so the call is not just to endure trials and we saw a glimpse of that with the relationship between children and uh, parents. We're not just called to obey, right? Because you can obey and curse that person in your heart. But rather, honor your father and mother. For this is the first commandment with promise that you do this and you will, uh, it will go well with you. You will live long on the earth. And in that same vein, that same principle, we're not just called to endure the trials in our workplace and in our vocations. We're called to endure it with the joy of the Lord. We're, we're called to clock in with exuberant excitement. Not cheesy excitement. You don't have to like skip a beat and roll into the workplace, like, you know, singing worship songs and stuff like that. That'd be weird. Or maybe not. Maybe try it. Tell me how it goes. <laughs> but we are supposed to exude something from the inner man, from the inner woman that says, I, I have joy. You can't destroy or take away that joy. The mundane in my, in my nine to five job can't put a finger on who I am and what I do. There's something deeper about me. There's something deeper about what I do than those mundane things and those ordinary things or for some of you the awful things and the pressure, uh, uh, pressuring things. And some of you at this point might say, well, I hear the call to be joyful, to be a joyful servant in my vocation, but my, my job is awful, and my employer is cruel, and I don't know how long I can do this. My capacity for doing this, for being a faithful servant in the workplace, is at its wit's end. And I certainly cannot manufacture joy and enthusiasm. I'm just trying to show up, man. For you, I believe Paul would say, that's okay. Because God isn't expecting you to manufacture anything. What Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter six is he's transcending your situation. He's transcending earthly authorities in your life. He's transcending the lack of, the recipro- lack of reciprocity that you deserve to get. He's transcending your trials and your uh, bad situations and the cruelty of this life. And he's making your motivation that he's calling to you about worship. He's grounding everything that he's calling you, uh, uh, calling you to about who God is and what God has done to you and what that response should be. Everything that you are called to do tomorrow morning when you show up at work is grounded in worship, and God considers it an act of worship, how you respond when you clock in or how you treat your employees. That's why in every single verse, he says, verse 5, do this as to Christ. Verse 6, do this as slaves to Christ. Verse 7, do this as to the Lord and not for men. Your job, even though you're supposed to get a paycheck, you're supposed to pay the bills, you're supposed to honor your employers, and you're supposed to respect your employees, ultimately is grounded in something far more transcendent. You're not ultimately doing it for each other. You are doing it for the Lord and not men or women. And we're called to this because God doesn't call us to anything that he hasn't already done for you and I. Here's where our motivation truly comes from. Here's where it transcends the, new, the numbers and the figures and the paycheck and the, uh, the vacations and the good words and the affirmation. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 through 20, Peter goes on. He says, "What uh, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Look at verse 21 though When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I think I added. Oh, yeah, yeah. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is what you and I have been called to when we leave the church building is to be like Christ was to us, when we go back to work. Because Christ isn't gonna call you to anything that he hasn't first done for you. You might, ask, you might be asking yourself, man, is God a ma- just masochistic, like just calling us to suffer, just for an act of worship? That doesn't even make sense. No, he's calling you to uh, join him in a mission regardless of the cost. And for some of you, the cost is going to be great. But you know what? The cost for Christ was ultimate. And Paul right now is desiring to turn the attention of both employees and employers away from themselves and towards one another with a call to outstanding behavior, not because anyone deserves it, and not because there's going to be any reward in this life, but it's grounded in what Christ has done for you and I, knowing that we will stand before the shepherd and overseer of our souls, and he will call us to account for how we lived as stewards of what he's given us. And don't you want to be rewarded when you see him on that day? Well done, good and faithful servant. I put you in charge of a little bit. I'm going to put you in charge now of a lot. So then the gospel is not just for our salvation. It's our motive for the way we live our lives. And think what would happen if Christians went to work in Santa Barbara every day, motivated by the gospel. Even though some of you don't find yourselves in situations where you can evangelize, even though you might not have a a platform conducive to evangelism and talking, you can't bust out a Bible study in your particular job, you can have integrity, you can be faithful, you can blow every other employee out of the water by how good you are at what you do. Even When nothing comes your way as a reward, even when you're suffering for it, even when it doesn't make sense, and there may come a point in time where other people ask you, why? You know what the apostle says? Be ready in that time to give an answer for the hope that is in you with gentleness and patience. And those people will know why you act the way you do. And what would happen if a lot of Christians went to work from Monday to Friday working well and giving answers for why they did that? The question for us, perhaps you, you've reached this point and you're saying, "I'm okay, I'm persuaded about our calling, but it's still not easy. And to be perfectly honest, I still can't turn that on like a faucet, you know, you can't just roll into a, a job situation that's difficult and just be exuberant. How does one become honorable? How does one show up to work on a given day doing the best that they can without any ulterior motives whatsoever to be truly altruistic? It's very difficult. Given our tendency to be self-preserving, to love ourselves, to want the best for ourselves in mind, knowing that people aren't going to aren't going to treat us the way that we truly deserve. After all, we simply can't muster up enthusiasm when our boss is cruel, when things aren't like we thought they would be. It's not like joy is a light switch that we can just flip on. So how does it happen when you're pressed beyond capacity? I want to explain the truths of Scripture that we saw by way of story, uh, in the testimony of an old missionary by the name of John Patton. Who once upon a time was called to leave a very lucrative job to do uh, something with very little reward, very little uh, affirmation, very little glory. He was called to bring the gospel to cannibals, cannibals who not... uh, not much longer before he got there, had literally killed and eaten his friends. And when he shows up on this island where there's no glory, there's no paycheck, there's no affirmation, he could go back to what he was doing at any given point to do something that had all of those things and he finds himself wondering, why am I doing this? Why am I trucking through the the toil and the suffering? And what's going to bring me through this to the other side, finishing well? He writes to one of his friends, Oh, that the pleasure-seeking men and women of the world could only taste and feel the real joy of those who know and love the true God. A heritage which the world cannot give them, but which the poorest and humblest followers of Jesus inherit and enjoy. My heart often says within itself, when, when will men's eyes at home be opened? When will the rich and the learned renounce their shallow, shallow frivolities and go to live amongst the poor, amongst the ignorant, amongst the outcast, amongst the lost, and write their eternal fame on the souls by them blessed and brought to the Savior? Only those who have tasted this highest joy The joy of the Lord. Will they never again ask, is life worth living? To those of you who ask, my job sucks, what does the Bible have to say to it? What does the Bible have to say about my situation and how can I possibly get through tomorrow, much less the next 10 years? To you, Scripture would say you have to discover a life worth living first. You have to discover a calling that transcends your nine-to-five paycheck, and you have to discover a master who is better than any in this life that you will ever find yourself serving. You have to discover a heritage which the world cannot offer you. And you have to know and love the true God. You have to enjoy him and honor him and glorify him and know him and experience him always. You see, honor doesn't just happen by sheer willpower. You can't just show up on Monday and flip on a switch and instantly be just super Christian, good guy, boy, person, girl, whatever. (laughs) Honor doesn't happen by sheer willpower. It happens By sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I would argue, as Mary would argue, sitting daily at the feet of Jesus. So I want to throw this out there as we worship this morning. And as you go out today and as you pursue your jobs and as you oversee employees and as you work for a living, and as you get that paycheck, and as you do all of those things that we've been called to, men and women of God, that you would, from this point forward, practice the presence of Jesus Christ as if your life depended on it. That you would practice the presence of Jesus Christ so that when you are pressed beyond your capacity, you would be able to say with the Apostle Paul, oh yeah, I'm pressed beyond capacity, all right, but I'm not crushed. And why am I not crushed? Because my light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Why am I not crushed? Because I have tasted the weight of glory. Why am I not crushed? Because I don't work for you, I work for you. Why am I not crushed? Because everything that I've ever wanted in this life, that I've looked in every variety, every nook and cranny for it, in vain, I have found in the person and presence and work of Jesus Christ. Why am I not crushed? Because I serve a better master. And some of you this day have yet to taste of the weight of glory. That's why you go to work. Every day, for eight hours, or maybe for a hundred hours a week, striving after glory, Because for you, glory looks like self-preservation. If I accumulate all of this, and if I watch my own back, and if I step on the backs of others, and if I go down this trajectory, and if I grab everything I can on my way there, and if I make sure that I get to the throne intact, I will taste glory that will satisfy and fulfill my soul. And you continue to progress in that job trajectory, wondering, why hasn't it come yet? and over and over and over and bigger paycheck after bigger paycheck and raise after raise and step after step, you find that you have not achieved it. Why? Because nothing in the earthly realm can satisfy what you are longing for. You are not called to work a job for yourself. You aren't called to do anything for yourself. And even though that might feel very prodding, it was designed to be very liberating. And for you, I want to invite you into a place of liberty this morning, knowing that you have been called for greater things than just to get by in your job. But it's going to require something of you. It's going to require that you be broken. Of all the things that you wanted and chased after in this life, And we're disappointed when you didn't get. And for you to sit at the feet of Jesus. Who worked to get to you. I'm convinced that sitting at the feet of Jesus will change the world. That's why Sunday is my favorite time of the week. Because we, we get to stop the week for a moment. Put everything on the shelf for just a minute and remind ourselves about the story that we got brought into. And for some of you, you need to be reminded of that. For some of you, you've never even known it. Repent of your sins. Turn your eyes to Christ as a better master. For the rest of us, let's just stop. Let's just cease striving and know that he is God. And what better place to do it than in a room full of people that are also trying to do the same. Notice that when people get together, as the scriptures promise, God is always present to bless them. With what? the weight of glory? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking knocking, and seeking. Wherever we find ourselves in our own personal lives, doubtless some of us are so consumed with where we're at in our lives that we've never just stopped and look at the grand scheme of things. And I pray that today, as we sing songs about how great you are, how wonderful you are, how powerful and faithful you are, how glorious you are, that that view of peerless worth would for a moment get our eyes off of our own situations and onto you. Thank you for that crazy anomaly, that counterintuitive thing, that even though we think that in order to fix ourselves we need to focus on ourselves, that somehow when the gospel hits us where it, where it matters, we find that when we are beholding the glory of the Lord, our lives start to make more sense. When our eyes are off of our problems and off of each other and off of ourselves and we are beholding a face of true beauty, things start to make a little more sense. And I pray that right now, God, you would do that. We worship you. You would would cause our eyes, even force. For some of us, we need you to step in and force our eyes upon you. Pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. For your glory in the city of Santa Barbara and for our joy, we pray these things. Amen.